Philippians chapter 2 this morning, would you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word? We'll be looking at verses 25 through 30. We'll finish chapter 2. Always feels like a moment for celebration. Chapter 2, verse 25. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Have you ever been out to eat? And just when you put in your order with a server, you begin to get back to conversation with those who are at the table with you, the server comes back. Awkwardly, right? You know it's too soon for the food to be here. No one needs a refill. So why are they standing at my table? Then you find out that the swordfish you were really hoping to order is out. It's all sold out. Sir, we're really truly sorry about that. Is there anything else we can get you? They hand you the menu again. You awkwardly look at it with everybody watching you, hurrying because you know everybody's waiting on you and your order to be put in with theirs. It's not what you were hoping for, but it'll be fine. I've never had swordfish before, you might say. Everybody says this is the place to get it, but I guess I can settle for something else. I was really hoping for swordfish, but I'll take the fish tacos instead. And then you see him, the server, coming out of the kitchen again with a sheepish look on his face. You know where he's headed. He's coming right to your table. They don't have fish tacos either. Sure enough, he comes back to you again with a menu ready and gives you the bad news. Third option, like a third string quarterback. At this point, the dinner might as well be done. Just give me a grilled cheese and a cup of Campbell's soup warmed up in a microwave, man. Do you have that in the kitchen? No one ever expects to win a football game with a third-string quarterback, and you know no one expects to have a great dinner with a third option. Might as well just call for the check, go home, and get ready for bed because the night is over. Am I being a little bit too dramatic about this? Some slight exaggeration. But you don't go out to dinner very often, especially if you're at a really nice place that offers swordfish. Who's had swordfish? And now your first two choices are gone. You're getting what no one else wanted. You get food that everybody else passed over. You feel stuck with something you didn't really want, and now you have to pay for it and act as though everything is just fine. Just be thankful for what you have. Well, Paul knows that this might actually be the case for the Philippian church, and he addresses it here in our text this morning. Paul knows the church would really love to have him get out of prison 
and come and visit them for a pastoral visit to see the people that he knew, the church that he planted in its progress about a decade earlier. He is the pastor, the planter. He's the Apostle Paul. He writes all these letters in the New Testament. He is the big honcho, the senior pastor, the seasoned veteran. However, as we know, he's in jail. He doesn't have the ability just to walk and get out and go visit anybody. He's in prison, which seems to only add to his street cred, that he's much bigger personality, almost like a celebrity pastor, right? And so he knows the second choice the church would love to have, the guy that we looked at last week, which is Timothy. Timothy is not Paul, but he's a good second. He's younger, a little less experienced, maybe an associate pastor in our day and age, right? Sometimes these stigmas go like that. Paul seems to be like Timothy. He must be a good guy. No doubt he could help us. He spent so much time with Paul. Lots must have been picked up along the way. You know how you can talk yourself into a backup choice, right? Well, it wasn't our first choice, but this one's going to be really great. Well, the first house that we really wanted, all these offers came in. This one's going to be fantastic, though. I can just see it. You're only doing it because you really wanted the first one, but now you've got to live with the second choice. You know it's not as great as that first one, but you also know you don't want to admit you're paying the same money but getting what you really didn't want. However, the church is not getting their first pick or even their second pick. Instead, as we found this morning when we read our text this morning, they're getting Epaphroditus, the third string. The guy who hasn't even been given playing time yet. He's not the senior pastor, not the associate pastor. This is the youth intern. (laughs) Maybe you've been in a church when the young guy preaches for the first time. Youth pastor gets up. Everybody groans. Maybe it's not audible. Hopefully it's never audible. Literally saying, can we really be blessed by the third string? Can this guy really be able to open the scriptures and give us what we need? Two weeks ago, when we were last in Philippians chapter 2, we saw Paul say, I hope to send Timothy to you. And now we see him saying in this text, I have thought it necessary to send Epaphroditus to you. I hope to send Timothy just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Well, Paul's in prison. How's it going to go with him? He's going to stay in prison for a little bit. So he wants to send Timothy, but he has to see how it's going to go with him. And he hopes to come shortly, but it's necessary now to send Epaphroditus. He wants to send Timothy. He wants to come himself. But the guy who's actually coming, the guy who most likely delivered the letter the church is reading out loud right now is Epaphroditus, sitting in the room while the elders of the church read the letter to the church at Philippi. The church knows Epaphroditus. Because not only is Epaphroditus the third choice, the youth intern, he is the local kid. He grew up there. These are his people. Paul is sending back to the church of Philippi the guy that they sent to Paul. You can imagine that they're saying, no, Paul, you misunderstood. We sent him to be a replacement so you could send Timothy. Or so he could take your place, maybe even in jail. Can you swap that? And you come yourself. We sent our third string so we could get an upgrade. 
You just imagine that Paul and being able to watch this church. And one of the reasons that we see this is because there's a lot of disunity that's already exposed and will be more seen in chapter four of Philippians. But we've already seen some seeds of discord and there'll be more that is shown clearly in Philippians chapter four. There's not all things are like they seem in Mayberry. There's a lot of issues that are happening. And as Epaphroditus comes back and he tells Paul, this is what's going on. When he gives Paul a gift, we'll see that here in just a moment. And he ministers to him that he's no doubt reporting this is how the church is doing. And just like any other church, there's always problems. There's people, and so there's opportunities for division. There's sickness, there's been death, there's been difficulties, there's struggles, there's false teaching that's right outside our doors that's wanting to make its way in. There's all of these opportunities for difficulty, dissension, and ultimately destruction. And so as Epaphroditus shares these things with Paul, Paul has, uh, I need to send somebody back. I'm gonna write a letter. I wanna let the church know how I'm doing here and things that they need to know and be reminded of. So Paul's sending back the guy that they sent to him. He's sending back Epaphroditus. When your children need something from mom and dad, often they'll send a representative from among the children, right? They'll send one of the kids to go out and go get the parents. And to their horror, the kids, the representative comes back instead of the mom or the dad with a message that says, we're not coming, but here's what you should do. Paul is trying to head off any comments and help Epaphroditus with the awkwardness that maybe ensued when he comes back into town. As Epaphroditus comes back, they, they might be looking around him. Hey, Epaphroditus, good to see you. Where's Timothy? Where's Paul? Are they, are they getting ready? Are they coming? And Paul wants to make sure for the church in Philippi and the Holy Spirit wants to ensure that for us too, that we know that while man looks on the outward appearance, God looks on the heart. And a man who examples Christ in sacrificial living for others should be honored by the church. So let's look at four T's this morning. First, we'll look at titles that Paul gives to Epaphroditus. As he commends Epaphroditus, just think youth intern coming back to the church months later, way after they expected him to be back and to be able to receive this report back of what Paul has experienced with Epaphroditus. He writes in verse 25, I've thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, my fellow worker, and my fellow soldier, your messenger and minister to my need. Five titles that he gives to this young man, Epaphroditus. A man who's mentioned only one other time within the New Testament, and it's later in Philippians chapter four. He's only mentioned here. He's not known outside of this canon. We don't see him mentioned anywhere else. But this Epaphroditus, one, is a brother. He's a Christian. He's a fellow believer. He's one who has come to faith in Jesus. He has made a proclamation of faith, trusting in the finished work of Christ. He is a brother. Paul has experienced this as they've engaged in conversation as Epaphroditus came to Rome and to visit him in prison. Epaphroditus is a brother. He is to be commended for his faith. Number two, he's a fellow worker. Fellow worker, a worker implies working hard. Disciples of Jesus are characterized by terms of labor and effort. He's a fellow worker. Paul doesn't say that he's one that should get to work or learn how to work. But he's a fellow worker. 
Parents would love to have the commendation of their children to hear from their bosses that your son or daughter is a hard worker. They have a good work ethic. It's a great encouragement. But Paul says about this young Epaphroditus, he is a Christian, he is a brother, but he is a fellow worker. He works hard. He is a worker in the ministry of the gospel here with me. So as Paul is ministering in Rome and as he's in prison, Epaphroditus is right there with me. He's been a fellow worker. He's also been, third title, is a fellow soldier. This implies that sometimes the work is dangerous. As we remember, Paul is uh, in prison. So that immediately conjures up images of danger. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, where Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Epaphroditus is doing that. He's a fellow soldier recognizing that the battles that we're facing are against the rulers and authorities, the principalities of the air, the evil one himself. And Epaphroditus is a fellow soldier. He fights. He works. He has faith. He commends this young brother to the church. This one you sent to me, I'm sending him back with this commendation. Already, we, as, if you're a parent of Epaphroditus or you're a friend of Epaphroditus, no doubt he's sitting with his head down. You can just imagine, embarrassed. Maybe his cheeks are flushed. And what else is he going to say about me? And yet parents got to be beaming. Those who discipled Epaphroditus, excited to see what God has done in this young man. As the Apostle Paul commends him back to them. But then notice the other, those are the commendations that Paul gives of this one, Epaphroditus, my fellow brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier, these relationships that I have with him, but your messenger, your minister to my need. You sent him as a messenger. He was one who literally came with a care package, came with money, came with resources. In the ancient day, you don't have a prison system like you have here in the United States. You don't have the ability to get all your meals taken care of. Uh, where you can just have a bed and all these things for free. You can even earn money in prison, I think. I've never been there, so I don't know. I'm just hearing secondhand. But you, in the ancient world, you as a family member or friends or a church have to pay for the resources that that person has. And so the church of Philippi is ministering to him by helping to take care of his debts, to pay for his imprisonment, to buy him food. Literally, he uses the word, my needs. One who comes, a messenger, to care for my needs. It is this gift that Epaphroditus brings, the update that Epaphroditus shares with Paul that initiates the letter that comes back to them. Things are not all good. Epaphroditus is to go back and to minister back to the church, but this messenger who came, he has been found faithful. He came and he did the task that you asked him to do. We'll see in a little bit that Epaphroditus was delayed significantly in his timing of getting back to Philippi. But Paul is letting them know by a letter that he came and did what you asked him to do. How encouraging for the church to hear back that Epaphroditus not only is these things, fellow soldier, fellow worker, brother, but he also was a faithful messenger and he did what you asked him to do. 
On top of that, Paphroditus was also sent and also ministered to Paul. It's one thing to be a messenger and to do what other people asked you to do. It's another than to take on yourself a ministry to someone else. And so Epaphroditus, whether this was part of what he was going to do or who he is, ministers to the Apostle Paul. It's interesting that Paul doesn't say, Epaphroditus received my ministry to him, but he ministered to my needs. He is the one. Either Epaphroditus volunteered for this role or he was chosen for some reason, but he is the one that the church sent to minister to Paul in prison, and he did so. He gave the gift and he ministered to him. He wasn't there just to deliver a package, but he was there to care for Paul. And the church had an arm, an extension of itself. Notice the language uh, that Paul gives at the end of the chapter, verse 30. That Epaphroditus came to complete what was lacking in your service to me. He filled up what you did not do. What you couldn't do for me, Epaphroditus came and he filled up, completed that work in me. I would just imagine that if we're reading a letter here like this, that we might take 15 to 20 minutes to read in its entirety as a church, that we would get to this section and there would probably be applause for a guy like Epaphroditus, one who you send out and go, I think he's got some pretty good characteristics about him. He's got some great potential. He's a youth intern, so he's kind of untested in some ways, and we're watching him. He's been brought up, discipled in some ways, but there's also a kind of a big question mark over him. We'll just see what continues to be developed in him. And then to receive back word from the Apostle Paul that this one came and did these things, what a great encouragement. Too often, Christians and the church can withhold affirmation unnecessarily. To be able to encourage one another, brother or sister, I'm seeing great growth in you. Children as well, as you watch them growing in holiness, as your child comes to you and confesses sin to you, says, Mom and Dad, I need to talk to you. I, I did this, and it was wrong, and I need to ask for your forgiveness. What an encouraging work of the Spirit that you see alive in them. Yes, they did something that might need to be addressed, that might have ramifications, but what an encouragement that they are repenting of sin. What an encouragement when you see other brothers or sisters growing. What an encouragement that repentance of sin, growth in Christ, disciplines of grace are when we see them in one another. May we be quicker to affirm and also humble enough to receive. Because on the flip side, sometimes if somebody were to come up to me and say, Pastor, I am so encouraged by watching. I've seen some growth in you recently. There's a part of me that would be offended by that, want to be offended by that. What? Growth in me? I'm seeing growth in you. Wait, you're looking at... But how encouraging that someone is, one, watching and is encouraged by it and the example that is being set for them. Epaphroditus is being an incredible example to the church. As this is being read, imagine it within a church, maybe 60, maybe 120 people, who knows? But within that congregation, guess what there are? There are little boys and there are little girls going, Dad, the Apostle Paul's commending that in this guy. And I know this guy. And I want to be like that guy because that guy is commended by Paul. And Paul commends Jesus and Epaphroditus must be, and we'll see how, but he must be like Christ. 
And I want to be like that. Now they have a person they can see in flesh and blood who is following after Christ and they can model their life after. And that is priceless. Because the reality is you are always influencing those around you by the way that you live, whether you realize it or not. You're either a good example of what to follow or you're not. And you as well are watching other people who are around you, whether you realize it or not. And certainly they don't know that, most likely. But you're watching their life. And what kind of an example are they to you and you to other people? Epaphroditus didn't write this letter, but the letters, this portion of it is being written about him and commending him to the church. Here are different names that are given to him, titles that Paul gives. Second, Paul also commends his tested character. Notice as we continue on, Epaphroditus' tested character. That is our second T. They're not fancy, they're just T's. So verse 26, he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard he was ill. Epaphroditus has been longing for the church. This is similar to the language that Paul uses of the church with this great, deep affection that he has for them, especially in Philippians, how he long, yearns for them with the affection of Christ. We, we showed words months back of this deep-seated affection that is uh, rooted within your bowels almost, which for them was the way of going, that's the strongest way someone could love some, another person. This deep-seated affection Paul has for the church, he's showing with language of longing that Epaphroditus has for them. It's not just, oh, I miss some of them. Oh, I'd like to be home and be back in my bed. I'd like to be in my comfortable surroundings. But his longing is for the church. His affection is for the people. He cares deeply for them. This is a characteristic of a shepherd that genuinely cares for the sheep. Paul's not saying Epaphroditus is just an emotional guy or that he's relational, but he, that he is a shepherd caring for his flock. Shepherds sacrifice for their sheep. They sacrifice their own care and comfort to stay with the sheep. They sacrifice reputation and relationships to be available to the sheep, live near the sheep, take, not take another position with greater benefits, but stay where they have been called around those to whom they are providing food and rest and safety for. Epaphroditus has a longing for the church. He is also distressed within himself because they heard he was ill and they had not yet had a progress report about him. So somehow within this travel that Epaphroditus has done, as he's making his way to Rome, at some point in that journey, he becomes sick. And he becomes sick almost to the point of death. Now, when he reaches Paul and he delivers the gift and he ministers to Paul at some point within that progress, word hasn't yet got back, it seems, to the church of Philippi. So as Paul writes, he's letting them know, Epaphroditus, the one that you sent, he got sick on the way. And his sickness was so severe, excuse me, his sickness was so severe that he almost died because of it. Illnesses in the first century were not like they are now. Epaphroditus' illness caused him to delay in coming back. But sickness within the first century was not always easily uh, taken care of like we expect it to be today. When someone got sick in the first century, it was very serious. Uh, today, we take it for granted that if we get a common cold or we get pneumonia even, that we could take some medicine, we can go to the doctor, and within a few days, we should likely be feeling better. 
Sometimes even medicine will say, take this for 24 hours, take this, call me in the morning. You're going to be fine. You're going to begin to start feeling some relief. In the first century, it wasn't quite like that. Sickness began to be something that was very serious, especially one that almost took your life. Epaphroditus is distressed for them because they heard that he was ill, and they still might be thinking that he's ill or that he's already died. His delay has been so long that they might have been even thinking he didn't make it, that something else happened, that maybe he took the money and he ran, that he didn't actually deliver it to Paul, that whatever was in that package he took and he kept. Rotten little scoundrel. There might be lots of rumors running around about this youth intern. All of a sudden, Paul writes and lets them know, Paphroditus has been longing for you. He is distressed because he knew that you were hearing he had been ill and had not received any word back. Epaphroditus almost died for the work of Christ. Epaphroditus was willing, as John Calvin says, he was willing to be rather negligent as to health than be deficient in duty. He was going to see this job through to the end, even if it took his life. Now, some of them might say that that seems careless, uh, but Epaphroditus was committed. He was committed to the cause of Christ. Again, Calvin says, sickness is not an excellence, but it is an excellence not to spare yourself that you may serve Christ. Not considering just himself, Epaphroditus sacrifices for the work of Christ in ministering to one person. And in ministering to Paul, Epaphroditus now ministers to the entire congregation of Philippi and to us this morning. You have no idea. The work that God calls you to do, you might say, it's just so small. I'm just supposed to love my spouse and raise our children for the glory of God. That's just a small task, and we have no idea how God might choose to use that task for others to see, for your children in the way that they've been raised and cared for and brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to go to the ends of the earth, to minister to other people. We have no idea. Epaphroditus is an incredible example of one who is willing to give his life for the work of Christ. He has a longing for the church. He's distressed. He almost died for the work of Christ. But Epaphroditus served Paul in the Philippian church by sending the gift to Paul while he was in prison in Rome. Third T, Paul gives thanks to God. Look at this in the next few verses. Indeed, Epaphroditus was ill, verse 27, near to death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. God showed mercy by letting Epaphroditus get better. Mercy, no doubt, to Epaphroditus, mercy to Paul, and mercy to the church, as Paul will say. And thanks to God, because God worked a miracle. Remember, in those days, it wasn't easy to recover from a serious illness, especially one where you almost die. And so it must have been almost a miraculous healing that Epaphroditus lived, gave the gift to Paul, ministered to his needs, and is able to go back to the church of Philippi. But no doubt that that sickness delayed him much. But Paul, in seeing this, gives thanks to God. He commends Epaphroditus, gives him these titles. He gives thanks to God for the mercy that he has shown. And then fourth T is he treats with honor. 
He commands the church, and here come the imperatives that are within this section. As he's commending Epaphroditus to them, we don't exactly know what he's commending them to. One author, Mark Garcia, says that he's commending Epaphroditus to now come back and be their shepherd. Paul's not coming right now. Timothy's not coming right now. We're going to wait and see how things go. But the youth intern that you sent to me, I'm sending him back to be your pastor. And I need you to receive him in this way because he is worthy of it. His character has been tested. We have seen what he has done, even up to the point of death. And like he said last week or two weeks ago when we looked at Timothy, there's no one else I can imagine who will do the work like Timothy. Imagine the same thing is being said here of Epaphroditus, that one is going to come who has sacrificed. If Timothy is the selfless servant, Epaphroditus is the sacrificial servant. One who has sacrificed much. And Paul says to honor such men as this. I'm the more eager to send him. I'm not just sending him, I'm excited to send him to you. I'm not just sending him back because I have to. I'm not just sending him back because he's driving me crazy, as we can somewhat imagine youth interns might do. No offense if you are one or were were one at one time. We can kind of imagine that. They got a lot of energy usually, okay? I'm not just sending him back because he's driving me crazy in this small little cell. Just keeps talking, playing, wants to play games all the time, Okay. I'm sending him back. I'm eager to do so because I know he's going to care for you. Shepherd the body. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men. Receive Epaphroditus in a friendly manner. Honor men like this. He has ministered to me greatly, filled up for me what was lacking in your ministry towards me. Honor men like this. How do we do that? We already looked at the life of Epaphroditus, just a little bit that we know, what's been given here in the letter. But Epaphroditus is fulfilling what Paul was calling the church to do back in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3. As he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourself. Epaphroditus has done that. He considered Paul and the church and the gift they were giving to him as more significant than himself, willing to risk his life to minister to Paul in this small way. He was willing to do so. And as Epaphroditus models this sacrificial life for the church, Epaphroditus is a model of Christ. As Paul goes on to say, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But Christ emptied himself, took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so just as Christ has come and condescended all the way down to us, sacrificing literally his life for us. So Epaphroditus was willing to give his life for the work of the ministry that God called him to. Whether small or big, he gave his life to it and was willing to die to do it. Honor men like that. This application that comes is going to be super awkward in a very real sense because as Paul calls the church here in Philippi to honor Epaphroditus and such men as this, I want to make some application to you that might seem strange in the way of honoring your pastors, of which I happen to be one. So that's why it's weird. This makes it sound really weird. So the more that we laugh, the more that it kind of cools the awkwardness, okay? (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate that. 
I had the privilege of preaching a whole sermon from Hebrews chapter 13 on caring for your pastor at another church in town earlier this summer. Caring for your pastors is a subject of which I'm really passionate about because it's a largely avoided topic. A largely avoided topic. Pastors won't preach on it for the most part. Not because it's not in scripture, but it is. But they won't preach on it because it seems self-indulgent. They won't advocate for themselves, and in one sense, rightfully so. Their whole ministry is caring for other people. Their eyes are set sacrificially on others, and their families often get left out of the equation. As the saying goes, the cobbler's family has no shoes. So it's awkward to say the least, but scripture doesn't shy away from awkward, and I typically don't either. (laughs) Sorry. The truth is, that even though I plan to live out my days here in Ellensburg, that I won't always be your pastor. Some of you will move away. Someday I'll pass on the baton that was given to me to someone else who's better equipped, who has more life and vigor, who can shepherd you in a better way for decades more. This is not just about Bobby or myself or the pastors who might be here, but those whom God will have you sit under all the days of your life. How do you honor such men? One, you look for a pastor who has qualifications that are biblical, but also that has a life that looks like what Epaphroditus is being commended of. He might be a youth intern, but he's an incredible example for pastoral ministry. So sit yourselves under men like that, men who model and example Christ to you, and then be able to honor them. There's a lot of qualifications that we can give as a type of men that that ought to be. And a lot of problems have come because we have men in pulpits and in pastoral ministry who ought not to be in any of those roles. A lot of damage and a lot of abuse has been done by pastors who ought not to ever have been honored, unfortunately. And some of you have lived through some of that. We want to be able to help in any way that we can, but we pray that God would allow Bobby and myself to be honorable men who example and model Christ to you, imperfectly for sure, but who example and model Christ to you and are able to shepherd you in a way that is biblical, honorable, full of virtue, and that cares for you as a human being. So how to honor your pastor too? applications. We'll try and go through them briefly. Honor his person and honor his position. Honor his person Pray for him and his family regularly. Peter Orr in a book, all the books on caring for your pastor are really thin, like 80 pages. They're really easy to read. Honor his person by praying for him and his family regularly. Peter Orr in his book, Fight for Your Pastor, says the person who is under more satanic attack than anyone else you know is your pastor. The person whose faith Satan wants to derail the most is your pastor. The person whose marriage Satan would most like to wreck, whose kids he most wants to cause to rebel, whom he most wants to discourage is your pastor. You need to fight in prayer for your pastor. As the American preacher Robert Harris once said, if you want a better pastor, you can get one by praying for the one you already have. Make sure he's getting the care he needs physically, spiritually, So pray for him, but then also make sure he's getting the care that he needs. Care for him as a human being who's a follower of Jesus, 
Because so many rely on him, he is most often the one who is preaching or teaching. So make sure he can sit under preaching himself, that he has time and the ability to care for his own soul. Make sure it's happening. Don't assume, but ask him. What sermons are you listening to lately? How is God feeding you from his word? Does he have the space to have silence and solitude, to pray, to think, to write? Does he have the ability to care for himself and his family physically, medically, so that he can worship and serve without distraction? Honor his person, but honor his position. Tell him how you're growing. Your pastor will be most encouraged more than you can imagine to hear how you are growing in Christ. There's a brother here who lets me know how God is continuing to work in him, the sins he's repenting of, and how God is growing him. It is the most encouraging conversations. Tell him how you are growing in Christ, whether or not he is directly related to the ways in which you are growing. He will see this as confirmation of God using him and his gifts in the church to grow, equip, and shepherd the flock. Be present and willing to serve. Don't always tell him how much you love your favorite celebrity podcast preacher. That's fine if you do. But make a priority to show up in person. He knows when you're not there. It's very discouraging to him and to the church when you only come once a month or even less. And don't complain that the things that are not, about the things not getting done, but instead offer to help where you are gifted, where the need is greatest. As we're getting awkward, this one gets super awkward. Pay him generously so he can be singularly focused on caring for the church, knowing that his family is cared for. So if the cobbler's family has no shoes, then buy him shoes. Buy his wife and children shoes so he's not making them. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. The laborer deserves his wages. And Paul says this after he says to the church, honor the widows and the orphan. But he says, give double honor to the shepherds who labor faithfully. Make sure that he has from his bosses, which is you, the church, who else has 200 bosses? Make sure he gets from his bosses what you get or want to get from your bosses. Think of him as a human being who has a job and as a person who has a family and who has needs. Encourage him. Tell him. Tell him thank you. Talk with him about the sermon and how it specifically impacted you. Give genuine encouragement. Encourage by being a friend. Pastors don't always have lots of friends. Don't assume he gets too much encouragement. Pastors probably get way less than you imagine. Don't think it's your job to keep him humble and dependent on God. Not just today after the sermon either. Don't just come up and say, hey, thanks for the sermon. There's gonna be a, that's fine. Not just on Pastor Appreciation Month or his birthday or anniversary or Christmas, but do digging. Find out what is meaningful for him and his family and encourage them. Lastly and specifically, but importantly, if you honor your pastor, then you will care for the person who is closest to him, and that is his wife. 
The pastor's wife has a difficult role. This is coming from an article that I found online, so that makes it a little bit easier to say. One pastor recently said that the pastor's wife is the loneliest position in the church. Don't ever let that be true. Have realistic expectations of her role. She's exactly like you, a servant of Christ. She's exactly like you, a wife trying to honor her husband. She's exactly like you, a struggling and discouraged mother. She's exactly like you, a woman trying to honor the Lord with her life. She's exactly like you, an ordinary church member. Love and serve her, then as you would others within the body. The very best thing you can do for your pastor, Christopher Ash, writes in his book, and I for mine, is to repent daily of sin, trust afresh daily in Jesus. To be honest, if you and I do this together with the committed belonging to the church, even if we are terrible at looking after our pastors in other ways, they will probably keep on pastoring year after year. All of this talk of honoring your pastor, while we joke and it might be awkward, we recognize that there are ways in which it can obviously be overdone or completely underdone. We come from generations where it, in a lot of ways, has not been done. This is not in any way uh, any issue with the church here and saying anything good or bad, negative or positive about the church here in the ways in which we've been cared for and honored, and we are grateful to God to be here. And if we weren't in any way honored, then we probably wouldn't be here. And yet God in his kindness has brought us together, and for that we are so thankful. Scripture says, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Not only is the church commanded to obey their pastors and elders and submit to their instruction, care, and shepherding, but there are also cosmic and eternal reasons why the church ought to care for its pastors, seen in that verse in Hebrews 13, 17. They are keeping watch over your souls. That is an eternal reason to care for your pastor. They're keeping watch over your children's souls, of your spouse, of your parents. And number two, they are being held accountable by God. Imagine with me if you would think of your pastor, if you, what would happen if pastors in churches were not being honored, if they were not being cared for. If he sacrificially gave his life for the church and they did not care for him and his family or honor the sacrifice, what if the church said, well, that's ministry, buddy. Sorry. What would happen? Pastors in the 1600s in England who wrote the Westminster Confession of Faith pondered this, and they said the ultimate result was that we would lose the gospel for a generation or more. And the reason is because unlike what would happen with Epaphroditus in the church in Philippi, you would have a church full of young boys who would be looking at a pastor not being cared for. As the pastors in the Westminster uh, Confession, as they wrote, they said pastors on the street corners begging for bread. You'd have young boys who would watch this and say, the last thing I want to do with my life is to pastor a church and to preach the gospel if that's how they're cared for. And those pastors 400 years ago wrote and said to keep and maintain gospel purity you must have educated men going into the pulpit who are cared for by their people. Because if they're not cared for, then you will no longer have learned men 
desiring and aspiring to the work of ministry, and you eventually lose the gospel. No one will be able to know how to defend sound doctrine because no one taught them, poured into them, and equipped them. You will mar the name of Christ, and you will not get another generation of ministers as those young men go towards careers that pay appropriately. That sounds very doom and gloom. But Paul here says to honor such men. The only thing I would say is, how do we do that? Is you look at yourself and say, what would it look like for someone to honor me for the work that I do? And may we do that for our pastors. And the truth is, may we do that for one another. As we desire to example, like Epaphroditus does to us, the selfless, sacrificial work of Christ in the gospel, may we do that for one another. If this is a gospel-living church, then it would be one where people care more for the other person around them than themselves. Not just true of the way that we treat our pastors or other leaders within the body, but the way that we treat one another always. Looking at them as human beings who are in desperate need of the grace of God, and we too, being in the same position, how can I care more for them, sacrificing for them for the sake of the gospel and one another? Because the reality is our lives are not our own. We've been bought with a price. So we ought not to live this life for our own dreams and goals, but seek what God is calling us to do. That's an uncomfortable position for those who love to control things. It's very uncomfortable to think of sacrificing for those who love security, planning ahead. Don't just serve where it's comfortable or easy. But do we give here and there? Or do we sacrifice? Do we find ways of being able to say, I, we want to give sacrificially to the church, serve others? As Epaphroditus is given, commended as an example, may we continue to look to the example of Christ, the one that he models for us. And may God continue to give grace to us as a church. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we are grateful for this morning and the opportunity to look into your word. We're grateful to be able to be reminded of the truths of the gospel, that Christ did come all the way down to us and give his life for us. And that we now are called to model that. The commands here were given to honor and to receive such men such as this. May we, by your grace, honor and receive with joy one another within this body. Honor those who are worthy of honor, who are examples of Christ to us. Can we affirm that in them by telling them, by sharing that with them? Father, even this morning, would you allow us, if there's been somebody who has ministered greatly to us over the years, even this week, to be able to write them and tell them, you showed me Christ. You might not even be aware of it, but I saw Christ in you, and that impacted me even to this day. And for that, I am so thankful. Father, would you continue to help us as your people to... Be quick to speak truth of encouragement and affirmation to one another, commending one another where appropriate, honoring others where appropriate. And Father, would you continue to give us grace to obey your spirit and desire to, uh, in all that we do, modeling the work of Christ in us, modeling the life of Christ to one another. Father, we ask this for your glory. 
and for our greatest joy to be found in Jesus. We pray. Amen.